Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we're continuing our study of Romans chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 29 of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. For all intents and purposes, we'll be finishing up chapter 9 of Romans today, which actually is an accomplishment because, as I've said before, Romans 9 is considered by many to be the most difficult chapter of the Bible. So you can turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 23. That's where we'll begin this morning. We're studying through verse 29 today. The chapter actually ends in verse 32, but most scholars think that the last three verses go better with chapter 10, and I agree. So we'll just introduce those verses today and cover them in detail in our next study. By the way, as many of you know, the chapter breaks and the definition of the chapters weren't originally part of the biblical text. Paul didn't break things into chapters, nor did any of the other biblical writers. It was just flat text from beginning to end. Chapters and verses were added in published editions of the Bible starting in about the 13th century. But each edition would do it differently. The standard chapters and verses that we use today were first used in what's called the Geneva Bible, a very significant edition of the Bible. It was the first widely produced Protestant Bible, and really the first very widely produced study Bible as well. It had cross-references and notes and introductions to the books, etc., things that we consider, you know, standard for study Bibles uh, today. It was a very significant Bible in history, produced about 50 years before the King James Bible. It was the Bible that Shakespeare knew, and so any references to the Bible in the Shakespeare plays would use the Geneva Bible wording. Anyway, we're going to disagree here with how the Geneva Bible broke this section up, and we'll consider verses 30 through 32 to be part of the next chapter, chapter 10. As we talked about before, Romans chapters 9 through 11 make up a cohesive section of the book which focuses on the children of Israel. The children of Israel, who were designated by the Lord himself as the people of God, would naturally have questions about how things were developing in the Christian era. First, they were seeing that not many Jews, percentage-wise, were accepting Christ as their Messiah, and they probably thought that that was odd. And then, because of this, the number of Gentile Christians was growing quickly, and they were probably realizing that because of the growth of Christianity among Gentiles, they were realizing that there would be more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians, if there weren't already. And this must have kind of shaken their whole view of the world. You know, they would say, we're the children of God. Uh, What happened to that? And actually, many of the Jewish Christians tried desperately to shoehorn Christianity into Judaism and make it part of the Old Covenant. There were numerous Christian preachers making the rounds at the young Christian churches, and they were telling the Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised and that they had to follow all of the Mosaic law in order to be true Christians. And this infuriated Paul. 
The revelation from Christ to Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles was that no, Gentile Christians did not have to be circumcised, nor did they have to follow the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant, etc. Christians are not under the law, but under grace. But as I said, many Christian Jews didn't understand that and kind of were clinging to their old ways, which is all well and good. But then they were also trying to force the non-Jewish Christians to become Jews in order to be proper Christians. All these things were going on at that time, and it must have puzzled the Jewish Christians because, frankly, the Jews were promised by God that they would always be God's people. So, in these chapters, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul is addressing these things, and he's teaching the Jewish Christians how things are in this new Christian era, and even why things are unfolding the way they are. Much of chapter 9 up to this point has been focused on establishing that God is in control of the situation, and that God is, in fact, being true to his promises. But in discussing this, one thing that Paul pointed out to Christian Jews is that it was never the case that all of the descendants of Abraham were, in God's eyes, the people of God. It had always been the case that just a percentage of Abraham's descendants were the faithful Israelites whom God considered to be his people. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it wouldn't make any sense even to the Jews that if a you know, I don't know, kid grew up to be a thief or a murderer or a blasphemer of God. It wouldn't make any sense that God would consider that guy to be one of his people just because he was circumcised. And, and the Jews should have known this. Here's how Paul put it earlier in, in the chapter. Uh, let's read Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Quote, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children." Unquote. And in fact, throughout the history of the children of Israel, it has been the case that the percentage of the number of Jews who were truly people of God waxed and waned over the years. At times, during periods of revival, a large percentage of the children of Israel were the true Israel. At other times, a very small percentage of the children of Israel were the true people of God. In fact, it got so bad in Israel that Elijah thought that he was the only one left. In a fascinating passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verse 14, here's the complaint that Elijah makes to the Lord. Quote, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too." Unquote. But God replies to him that no, he's not the last faithful one of the children of Israel. Here's what God says a few verses later. Uh, let's read 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. Quote, uh, this is God speaking. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him." Unquote. And so there were still 7,000 who were still faithful, who had not bowed to the you know, pagan god Baal, who were true people of God from amongst the descendants of Abraham, not just one as Elijah thought. And note that God himself reserved these people. 
Now, as compared to one, yes, 7,000 is a great number of people. But as compared to the total number of Israelites at the time, which, you know, could have been in the millions, well, that's a minuscule percentage. Things must have been really bad at that time. Anyway, the, the point of what I'm saying here is that the percentage of the true people of God within the nation of Israel has always waxed and waned over time, even to the point where, at the time of Elijah, the percentage was minuscule. These are the basic subjects that Paul is addressing in these chapters. All the questions about the role of the children of Israel in this new covenant era. So let's get to our text. Let me read the whole passage uh, before we dive in. Uh, We're going to look at verses 24 through 29 today, but we'll start reading in verse 23 because that's where the sentence starts. Uh, Verse 24 is the last part of uh, that sentence. Anyway, Romans 9, verses 23 through 29. Quote, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah." In verse 24, Paul breaks the news to the questioning Jews here that it's God's plan that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, join them in being numbered as the people of God. And this was always God's plan. Paul cites some verses in Hosea which speak of the way that God works in general in calling people that no one ever thought would be called. Again, Paul says, citing some verses in Hosea, uh, again, let's read verses 25 and 26. Quote, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Unquote. These verses from Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1 uh, verse 10 Uh, These verses in the context of the book of Hosea were speaking about the calling back into being part of the people of God, the ten rebellious tribes of Israel. Those tribes had fallen into gross idolatry and in doing so were no longer considered by God to be his people. God tells Hosea that there would come a time of revival for them and that they would be brought back into the fold. So then, Paul, using these verses, establishes a principle that God, according to his will, will at times draw people to him who, uh, from a human point of view, we would think have no chance of turning to God in repentance. And maybe you know some examples of this. Maybe there's someone, a friend or a loved one or an acquaintance or whatever, and they become a Christian. And you thought, wow, I never thought that would happen. You know, he or she is the last person I would thought, uh, you know, I would have thought would have turned to Christ. And God does that at times. And thank God he does. Thank God he says, 
I will call them my people who are not me people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Again, thank God he does that. I mean, I'm sure probably all of us have gone through times when if an unbiased observer looked at us, they would say, hmm, that person is certainly not one of God's people. And indeed, even we ourselves would admit that we're not acting like God's people at times. So thank God that he, by his spirit, draws us to him or or draws us back to him, as the case may be, and says, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Thank God for that. And moreover, we should rejoice when we see this happen. We, would, we should rejoice when we see a you know, dyed-in-the-wool sinner repent and change their lives and become one of God's children. At times, though, unfortunately, people, even Christians, get mad when a very corrupt sinner repents and turns to Christ. And this is wrong. We should be rejoicing with the angels when any sinner, no matter how bad they were when any sinner repents and turns to Christ. But unfortunately, some Christians have this attitude. Uh, They judge for themselves that maybe this or that person just does not deserve to be a Christian. Maybe you have even thought that for a brief moment. I, I don't know. When, when you heard of you know, your friend or acquaintance whom you thought would never turn to Christ, maybe when you heard that, uh, when you heard that they became a Christian, maybe you thought, hmm, well, that's not right. <laughs> Frankly, shame on you if you thought that. Because as Christ said, the angels rejoice when any sinner repents. You can find that in Luke 15.10. And actually, sadly, this sort of attitude is common when a high-profile criminal turns to Christ in prison. This happened a few times in the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, where more than one, I think, convicted serial murderer uh, was witnessed to and, and became a Christian. And, and there were people, even Christians, saying, hey, why are they even preaching to them? And this even shook the faith of some Christians. They'd say, well, that's not right. How can this serial killer become a Christian? God, that's not right. But those who say that, by saying things like that, they're they're demonstrating that they just don't understand the grace of God who desires that everyone be saved, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.16. And they just don't understand the love of Christ who said, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. You can find that in Matthew 11, 28. And certainly, those who question God's wisdom in saving a hardened criminal, well, I think they would deserve the rebuke that Paul gave in the previous section. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? It is in no way, shape, or form our job to decide who should and should not be saved. It's our responsibility to reach out and preach the gospel to absolutely everyone. God's the one who draws them to him. Given all this, we have to be careful that we're not consciously or unconsciously excluding who we share Christ with for one reason or another. It's absolutely not our job to filter out who hears the gospel. And certainly, at the church level, we as a church should do our best to welcome anyone through the church doors. I mean, there's some churches who don't want 
poorer people to come into their church. And of course that's wrong. Or, or by race. There's some who consciously or unconsciously treat those of a different race differently and, you know, in one way or another, block them from the proper worship of God. And more prevalently, there are many churches who would not welcome gay people in their church. And that's wrong, too. And certainly, ex-convicts feel that they're not welcome at some churches, and that's wrong as well. For an example of how God blesses this attitude that everyone should be welcome at a church, just look at Calvary Chapel. In the mid-60s, Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa Church in Southern California, there was, he had a congregation of about 25 people at that time, mid-60s. And then God put it on his heart to start preaching to the hippies and even drug addicts in the area. And Pastor Chuck resisted this, actually. They were barefoot. They were a bit dirty and smelly, you know, even. And he wrestled God about, you know, this kind of revelation given to him. But he was obedient and... He started an outreach to them, and he let them into the sanctuary and allowed worship leaders with guitars to lead worship, and and the rest is history, as they say. God blessed that decision, and now there's over 1,500 Calvary chapels worldwide, just as God had said here in Romans. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So anyway, back to our text. Historically, the Jews had grown to disdain the non-Jews and had come to this idea that there was no way that Gentiles could enter into the special group of being identified as the people of God. Although it was prophesied to Abraham himself that through him, all nations would be blessed. We find that in Genesis 22:18, among other places. Let's read that. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me, unquote. That's God talking to Abraham. And granted, this is a bit of a veiled prophecy, I think. But Paul is making it clear here that they were seeing this prophecy be fulfilled and that that was another time when God was calling those who were not his people to be his people. Peter echoes this also, speaking specifically to the Gentile believers. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, he says, quote, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Unquote. The Jews were used to being referred to as the people of God, and they certainly were not used to any of the Gentiles being referred to in that way. So then, this fact, the calling of the Gentiles, was not necessarily something that the Jews, even the Christian Jews, would be rejoicing in. Though, as I said, it's wrong for any of us to be downcast about anyone coming to Christ. The redemption of anyone, even our worst enemies, should be the cause of rejoicing. This wrong attitude is reminiscent, really, of Jonah, after he was pretty much coerced by God to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh turned to God and sought forgiveness from God because of the preaching of Jonah. And because of this, God did not destroy Nineveh. So you would think that Jonah would be rejoicing about that. I mean, he preached to them, they responded, they turned to God. You know, that was the purpose of his preaching. 
God used them powerfully to turn this evil, you know, people group uh, to, to God. But instead, here's what Jonah said when he heard that God was going to spare Nineveh. And we find this in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Quote, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live." Unquote. Clearly, Jonah should not be a role model for us on how to behave after successfully preaching the gospel to someone. Why'd you go and do that, God? Why did you go and say them as a result of my preaching? It's kind of uh, absurd, <laughs> really. Paul had more quote-unquote bad news for the Jews here, uh, back here in Romans, uh, and that was that only a remnant or small percentage of them would be saved, at least in the near term. And this was all part of God's plan. Again, Paul points to past prophecies where similar things happened. Incidents in the past when the children of Israel, by and large, were disobedient. But nevertheless, God preserved a faithful remnant. Paul cites two areas of Old Testament scriptures about this. First from Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23, and then from Isaiah 1, uh, verse 9. We'll read Paul's paraphrase of these verses uh, from here in Romans 9, verses 27 through 29. Quote, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left his descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah." Unquote. It's interesting that the point of view of the Jews concerning this is very different than the point of view of God. From the Jews' point of view, God is rejecting a large majority of the children of Israel. But from God's point of view, God is preserving a remnant of the children of Israel to be faithful to him. And to be frank, God's point of view is the more correct one. After all, the rejection of the, their Messiah was a great sin of the children of Israel. This is the Messiah that was long promised. And even in that culture, there was great expectation that he would come at that particular time. And the Jews not only rejected him, but played a large role in putting him to death. And yet, God in his grace didn't reject all of Israel, but he preserved a remnant who remained faithful to him. In fact, Paul suggests in verse 29 that if God had not intervened, there would have been absolutely no remnant. Let's read it again, verse 29. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left his descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah, unquote. To become like Sodom and Gomorrah is to be utterly destroyed. And again, the rejection of the Messiah was a serious sin, especially the way in which Jesus was rejected. But God in his grace preserved a remnant anyway. And in fact, there has always been a preserved remnant of Jews who accept Christ as their Messiah, even up to today. 
In fact, according to the Pew Research Center, there are about one and a half million ethnic Jews who identify themselves as Christians in America. And so the remnant remains. Starting in verse 30, Paul starts exploring the reasons for all of this from a human point of view. Exactly why there's only a small portion of the children of Israel who are Christians. And basically, it's because the Jews, by and large, were having problems accepting the fact that someone could be saved just by faith. As Paul points out in the next few verses, this doctrine and Jesus himself was a stumbling block to them, or or a stumbling stone, as Paul calls it in the NIV translation. Let's look ahead a bit. In verse 32, Paul is explaining why most of the Jews in the Christian era fell short of attaining righteousness in the sight of God. Here's what he says, Romans 9, verse 32. Why not? In other words, why didn't they attain this righteousness? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, unquote. Now here, if you're paying attention, you may notice something. Paul is speaking again about human responsibility. He's speaking about the choices that we make which determine our eternal destiny. In much of chapter 9, Paul is speaking about things from God's point of view and how God calls certain people according to his purpose. And he even hardens certain people according to his sovereign purpose. And we even talked about how some scholars take those verses and conclude that there is absolutely no role by human choice in our eternal destiny. But then, as we've talked about, I kind of rebel against that view. Because the plain teaching of Scripture in many more places is that we do have some, shall we say, control over our eternal destiny, and that we need to turn to Christ in faith. And in the Bible, that decision to turn to Christ in faith is depicted as a choice that we make. John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the world, that those who are given the ability to believe will have eternal life. No, no, rather it says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life. We need to believe in Christ, and that's a human decision. It's a choice that we make. I think, and many other scholars think, that those who say that there is no role of human choice in our salvation, I think that that's an unbiblical position because there are so many verses which talk about our role and our responsibility to respond in faith. Again, faith is a choice that we make. In fact, in the very next chapter, Paul himself talks about the things that we need to do in order to be saved. Let's look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Quote, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, unquote. Again, declaring with your mouth and believing in your heart, those are human decisions. Those are decisions that we are responsible to make in order to be saved. And that's the simple meaning of the words on the page. When a verse says that you need to believe in order to be saved, the simple meaning of that is that we need to make that choice to believe. And there are many scholars and pastors who say, well, any faith that we have is given to us by God, and the implication is that anyone who believes is really compelled into believing. And I disagree with that. I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches. And I think that that view, the view that faith is kind of forced on anyone who comes to Christ, 
I think that that view makes many verses out to be a lie. Because Paul doesn't say if the Holy Spirit compels you to confess with your mouth and the Holy Spirit gives you, you know, no choice but to believe in your heart, etc. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says that we ourselves have to do these things. So then, from a human point of view, we need to make these choices. That, I believe, is the testimony of the Bible in many, many, many verses. And if you take this view that faith is effectively forced on people, then you're really making all of those verses out to be a lie, aren't you? Because the simple meaning of the words on the page is that we ourselves need to turn to Christ in faith. So then, the question becomes, well, how do we reconcile this with the teachings about God's sovereignty that we've just gone through? And, and I've talked about this quite a bit before. These ideas seem to be contradictory. In Romans 8, this same Paul says this. Let's read Romans 8, 29 and 30. Quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Unquote. And here's how I reconcile these views. And I've said this before. Let God be God and humans be human. God, as testified in the Bible, is sovereign, and more than that, he's much more intelligent than I am. Somehow, he works things out according to his purposes, but he does so in such a way that at the basic level, we do have the responsibility to turn to Christ in faith in order to be saved. I, as a person, don't have the intellectual capabilities to understand how God does this, but as a person, I am told in the Bible that I need to make the choice to have faith in Christ. And so, because the Bible tells me this, then it's my responsibility to make that choice. So, to reconcile these difficult and seemingly conflicting ideas, I'm really pleading humility here. I'm saying I don't have the capabilities to understand how God does what he does in his sovereignty. That's really his business. My role as a human being is to carry out the instructions given to me in the Bible. In other words, let God be God and let humans be human. God will take care of his side of things, but that doesn't relieve me from the responsibility to take care of things on my side and make the correct choices according to the plainly written instructions in the Bible. And the reason I'm bringing this up again, these are subjects that I've spoken about before in the previous study, so you're probably you know, sick of this subject. But I'm bringing them up because we're entering a section that speaks of the human responsibility side of things. And this section that we're entering is right next to an entire section, it's chapter nine, which we're just finishing, an entire section where Paul speaks of things from the point of view of God's sovereignty. So clearly, because Paul juxtaposes these things, I mean, he places them right next to each other, he must believe that they're not contradictory to each other. Paul writes on both things right next to each other. And so, in Paul's mind, both are true. God is sovereign, and we humans have the responsibility to respond to Christ in faith. And I think that the best way to reconcile these things is to be humble about it. We just don't have the ability to understand all of the ways that God works things out 
and how he does things. We're not God. So we can't possibly understand that. But we are people. And the Bible tells us in plain language that we have the responsibility to do certain things in order to be saved. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess with our mouths that Jesus is our Lord. It's our responsibility to make those choices. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.